This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome. This is Garden of Sound. Today on the show, Des Newton. Born in the UK, Des moved to New Zealand at an early age and travelled about the country before finding himself in Wellington in the late 1960s. A series of opportunities led him to Christchurch, a family and a teaching job. But there was more waiting for Des in the guise of a professional music career. With close to 50 years in the business, Des is still playing covers around Christchurch. But will his original music get the recognition it deserves? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Des Newton on 96.9 Plains FM. Des, I want to kick off with your early life. I've already found out that you're born in the United Kingdom. Uh, when was the first time music uh, entered the ears and you went, what's that? It was probably not long after I was born. My father was a stereo buff, or in those days probably a mono buff. Yeah. Um, we always had records being played. Things like um, the shows, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. South Pacific, uh-huh. later on My Fair Lady, um, he was into Connie Francis and Doris Day. In those days, um, everyone sang and whistled at work, hummed along. I'd hear the lady next door singing country songs while she was hanging out or washing, you know. So I've been immersed in music all my life. Do you think there's less music in the rest of the world? Obviously, there's a music scene, but when you talk about workplaces, you very rarely, apart from myself, you know, hear people singing or humming. You never hear it. It's it's died out. I mean, you used to hear the, the the man delivering the milk whistling or singing as he walked down the street. You know, uh, it, that's gone. Where do you think the happiness has gone? I think people have got a little bit more, and I guess I'm guilty myself of being more into themselves and not quite so communal as they were years ago. Mm. I think. I think being brought into the country too. You know, we were we we had to think about other people. And what part of the um, what part of the UK? What part of the country are you talking about? Well, I was actually born in Grimsby, which is in Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. I came out here when I was very young, so my memories are being brought up on the Kaikoura coast, up in the high country, in the North Island. We travelled around Dabwick for the government, so we travelled around. So your mother and father both liked music. I don't think Mum was really into music. Mum was more into literature. She was a bookworm. Um, an educated woman. Um, Dad was the, the singer, and Dad, Dad could actually sing. He had a beautiful voice, but he was too shy. So when was the first time uh, your sort of musical talents emerged? Was it vocally, or, uh, you know, was there a guitar or a piano around the house? No, my sister played piano when I was a child. She learned at primary school, taught herself on the old upright. But we used to sing at home. We weren't a party family. We didn't have lots of parties but there was a lot of singing at home I remember when I was about I think about nine dad took myself my older sister and I think my younger sister down to the local pub and we actually sang in the bar for a a raspberry drink here so you say that your sister didn't have any sort of official music tuition what about yourself was there anything at sort of school whether that was vocally or on an instrument I've never had a lesson in my life. Wow. About anything, no. When did you start sort of playing, uh, playing guitar at least? 
Well, when I was at high school, I got quite interested in it. We used to swap bits of guitars and try and build one, which we never did. The Shadows were big, the Beatles were big. We're talking, uh, I started in 1964 at high school. When I left school, I, I was asked to leave school by my father because we had a big family and I think he wanted to, me to contribute to the income. So I left school at 15 after school set. But I started out by just hanging around with this band and I was the roadie for this band for a while. I used to set up the drums for the drummer guy who in later years wound up in one of my bands, which was quite interesting because he was quite a bit older than me. So I guess that's when I got interested in music. But then I moved to Wellington in 1968 when I was 16 and um, I got into the folk scene there. And I heard a guy from England called Bev Alty, I still remember his name, playing on a guild acoustic guitar and I had to learn the guitar. Shortly after that, I sort of got immersed into the John Mayle, Eric Clapton thing and I heard uh, Eric Clapton playing on, the, on his album with John Mayle. I heard the guitar sound and I was hooked. I was an electric guitar player from there. I want to take you back to Wellington in the late 60s. How would you describe uh, the folk scene or at least the, the political feeling amongst your peers at that time? It was intense. It was very anti-war. You have to remember when I was 18, I got a draft card. In those days, it was balloted and I missed out on the ballot, which meant I didn't have to go into the territorial army, which was good because it meant I didn't have to cut off my hair. Um, how and, long but, was your hair at this point? Oh, it was um, about halfway down my back, back. I think. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was intense. There was a lot of feeling. You know, we look at the, the news today and we see about the um, environmental protests that, that are going on. Well, it was exactly that back in the 60s, but it was about the war in Vietnam, just about the whole peace thing. You know, people were just sick of it. I think... You know, we were the lucky generation that we never went to war and we didn't want to. You know, we saw it was all on the TV. We didn't want to be part of that. You know, we were just trying to get a message across. And the folk scene was very much a part of that, perhaps more than the rock scene. So you've talked about Bev Alti and, and the need to, uh, to pick up uh, guitar. Um, what sort of road did you travel down in terms of, uh, of writing or performance, at least in those early, early days? Well, in the early days, um, actually things happened quite quickly because I was in Wellington and I was just sort of moving along, trying to earn a living and carrying on and whatnot. And I was doing a seasonal job, flatting with a couple of guys from Christchurch and we were um, all at the same work. And at the end of the season, um, one of the guys said, I'm going to Christchurch, going home for a few weeks. Do you want to come for a holiday? And I thought, oh, yeah, OK. So I was supposed to be here for three weeks, and that was in June 1969, and I'm still here. <laughs> so the Christchurch music scene 50 years ago, sort of describe how it was, what was going on. There was a lot going on. There were bands and most pubs, um, there weren't as many pubs and they were bigger. There were some great rock bands in Christchurch and when I came here I kind of moved away from the folk thing because I saw these great rock bands and when I say rock, they weren't really heavy rock bands, they were just pop rock bands and um, really great, they were so good. Unbelievable players, uh, I, I can still remember some of the, the guitar players, Tim Piper and 
Um, they were just so good, you know, they were unbelievably good. Who were the um, international contemporaries that I guess folks were aspiring to, to be like back in those days? It was the, really the birth of the start of segregation in music. Like in 1965, everyone listened to the Beatles and the Stones and that. It was pop, come rock. But around Woodstock, around about that time, things started to sort of get a little bit more separate and you had like folk rock, you had country rock, you had heavy, much heavier rock and you had the sort of like chart rock, pop mm-hmm. songs, you know. So there were different people in those different genres, you know, um, like Ray Columbus, who was a pop singer, you know, there was people like, uh, well, in Christchurch, there weren't too many recording artists. I remember Craig Scott was one. There weren't a lot of people actually doing a lot of recording. Mm-hmm. People like Shona Lang from Nelson and um, a little later, or about that time, The Formula from Wellington and mm-hmm. people like that. You know, it was more pop than sort of rock. So were you doing a solo thing at this time or were you joined up with a group? Well, I was in a garage band, okay, and then um, time moved on and I got married. A lot of people got married quite young in the 70s, and I did. And um, then I thought, you know, I would better get a career, so I went to Teachers College and did a couple of stage three-level university papers in fine art and history, and I became a teacher. But while I was at Teachers College, I had to earn a living, so I decided to join a commercial band and I answered an ad in the paper for a guitarist and auditioned for it and got the job and that set me on my path to a professional career because I was a semi-professional musician. I was at Teachers College but I played two, three nights a week and in those days you actually got paid pretty well, mm. better than now. At the end of Teachers College, which was three years, I had enough money to get into a brand new house and had supported a family. I taught for four years. I was guaranteed a job for the four years. Then I was on my own, no jobs in Christchurch. I went pro. Okay. What was the name of that first band? Uh, it you was joined? called System. Any recordings still exist of that? Uh... It wasn't that sort of band. It was a band that did commercial gigs. We We did pubs, but mostly we did things like corporate functions we did balls it was a great grounding for a musician because it meant that you learned the discipline that you needed to become a local professional musician because the keys to that is you have to please people you can't just do your own thing you've got to play what people want to hear otherwise they won't get you back so I, I learned the discipline and had a good teacher and the leader of that band whose name was John Mitchell. He was a good guy and he knew what the secret was and, and we did really, really well. And it wasn't until after I um, couldn't be a teacher in Christchurch anymore and didn't want to move that I had to go solo to uh, carry on with a, a professional and an income-earning career. And the lessons I learned from John Mitchell and that band... Um, carried me in good stead for the rest of my career. It's time for some music. Um, I often ask uh, about influences, at least people that may have uh, sort of guided you in your your playing or or writing or performing style. Is there anyone that sort of springs to mind that we could hear a track from? Well, you know, we talked before about um, country rock and that has influenced me more than anything else. And the band I really admired back in 
the early 70s was a band called the Orman Brothers, Dickie Betts on vocals and guitar, and the song I loved was um, Rambling Man. Oh 
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Des Newton on Plains FM 96.9. Uh, Des, I want to talk about um, maybe a first gig, first big gig that you went along to that left an impression on you. When I was living in Blenheim, when I was a teenager, I was probably 15, um, I went to a concert by a chart-topping um, Auckland band called the Ladi Dars, and they had a song out um, called Hey Baby. It was quite poppy on the charts, and they, uh, they had a dance sort of slash concert that I went to in the town hall in Blenheim. Um, and the guys were all tall and slim, had long hair and wore striped bell bottoms and paisley shirt, and it was just amazing. And I just, I just loved the groove that was happening. And I managed to get backstage with a couple of mates, and so we were in the engine room while they were playing, and um, watching it from side on, you know, and it, it just gave me a, a kind of a chill, you know. I just had this idea that, wow, this is amazing. I could. Could I do this? Um, the Lady Dars were a pop band, sort of, but they weren't. That was their chart um, front, but they they did some great rock stuff as well, and it was just a wonderful concert. Were there any particular members of that group that went on to do anything, or did that group sort of get any bigger? I don't think so. I think that was kind of really the highlight of, of their career, but... Um, it probably lasted a couple of years in the in the limelight. Are there any acts that you've seen across the years who you think could have gone on to greater things had it not been for? I know, um, like people like Craig Scott, uh, the the band that backed Craig Scott, they were really good. Um, I think they could have probably done something. Um, I've worked with one of their members, but I mean, like some of these guys, you know, they did things like open for Michael Jackson and stuff like that, but. It kind of didn't go any further. I think a lot of the guys here who perhaps could have gone a little further were like entrenched in their life, um, wives, girlfriends, you know. It can get mm-hmm. tricky, you know. You got It's always a balancing act. Mm. Um, and how have you found that? You're, uh, you're married, of course, across the years. Um, what do you think the key's been to sort of keeping the relationship healthy while you've been a professional musician? You, you actually have to just make sure that your wife is, and your family are well catered for. I mean, I have children, obviously. Um, I think too many people think that you can't be a normal guy and be a musician, but that's actually not correct. You can. And I've never subscribed to the, you know, live fast, live short, yeah. you know. You know, I've never been into drugs. I don't mind a bit beer or wine here and there, but I'm not a big drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's all about respect. You have to respect your wife. You have to respect your kids. You have to respect everybody, really. Mm. Um, I've had a, a very, very good and lucky life. And part of it's due to my wife being so understanding when you know I have to go to a gig or I'm going to a gig and I'm not that well and blah, blah, blah. But um, in the hours, um, like, for instance... I had breakfast in bed every morning when I was young and the kids were little because it was just so easy to just give me breakfast and keep me out of the way while she was getting the kids ready for school. And I was never expected to have to do that because um, I'd be getting home late. But by the same token, I'd make sure that, you know, she was well catered for and looked after and, and so were the kiddies. 
go on holidays and things and just try and act like a normal family. There's no reason why you can't. Some of the great stars, you know, the Jaggers and the um, McCartneys, they do that, you know, and mm. they seem to keep things together. So it does, I'm not going to use the word idyllic, but it does sound a, just a very sort of positive experience over the years. I'm sure you've had gigs that haven't quite gone to plan and things might have sort of fallen over. Anything that springs to mind? The the, the worst thing that's happened to me at gigs is is you, you might get resentful, other males who give you a bit of lip. I remember um, getting attacked by a woman once in a pub when I was a solo. How did that come about? Well, she came up to me and asked me if I could play a certain song, and I said, oh, sorry, honey, I don't know that one. And um, she grabbed me by the hair, which was also quite accessible. You know, I wasn't going to do anything about it because there was a lot of locals there, so the pub manager came over and sorted her out. But, I mean, that was quite uncalled for. How was the rest of that gig? It was fine once you'd gone. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the advice uh, for, for young Des? Was there a, ever a fork in the road and you think maybe I, you know, would have been nice to try try something else or do something a little differently? That's actually quite a complex question because we're all different and the times are different now to what they were then. You have to remember when I got into music, every parent was against it just about you know i mean now parents are a bit more relaxed about it what know? did they want you to do i don't think my parents had any great idea about what they did want me to do i think my mum would have liked me to be because um, mum was educated and, and i was too you know and mum would have liked me probably to be a school teacher or maybe a writer or something like that or i don't think dad was that bothered but he didn't want me to be a musician and he, he did make it quite hard for me in the early days, which um, annoyed me in in one way because I have a brother who's 13 years younger than me, which is quite a big gap. And when he took to playing the keyboard and starting to sort of tentatively follow in my footsteps, my father was saying, oh, you should carry on with the look at what your brother's doing. And I'm thinking, of a crap. So it's just it's just of a time. I think I, I actually asked Dad about it later in life, and he said that he was just frightened of me getting involved in the drug scene. But my mother said I was born forty years old, and I've always been sort of like cautious of that sort of thing, you know. I guess when you talk about the uh, the peace scene and the movements and so on, and I guess one aspect of you know seeing things like Woodstock on TV is all those you know hippies getting naked and you know smoking marijuana and that kind of thing. Is that pretty much the overriding impression that your your parents kind of like had of 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 music, full stop, or at least young people's music? I think that's what um, anyone over the age of forty had that impression. That it was pretty visible, you know. And look, people did that sort of thing. You know, the the drug scene was horrific in Wellington in 1968, I remember. It's a question of individual responsibility. You either get involved or you don't, you know. I mean, uh, there's just a, a few that did, you know, but they, they're they the ones that get the attention. They, they get put their names in the paper, you know. Absolutely. It's time for some music, being, yeah. a, being a music show. Um, have you got a favourite track or maybe something that's it's a current fave or maybe something that you've kept with you always that you really love? I've got a lot of songs I really love, but... I think the one that reflects me and and my aspirations more than anything else is a, an Eagles song called Take It Easy. I like their early work when it was kind of a little bit more carefree than it became later. And I like songs with melodic guitar lines and songs with a good story and a nice line.
you know, a nice uh, vocal line in it. So uh, that would be my pick. The Garden of Sound interview with Des Newton on 96.9 Plains FM. Hey, I'm Max, singer and guitarist from Merlinco. When you need some stellar photos to help sell your band or next gig, get in touch with Shannon Jessica. She's not just a great photographer, she froths local music. And that passion comes through full swing in all the work she does. 
This month, Shannon's offering a lovely introductory special, meaning your shirt could cost as little as 150 bucks. But these packages have got to be snatched up by the end of the month. So visit shannonjessica.com for a beautiful portfolio from your next gig. That's shannonjessica.com. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Des Newton on Plains FM 96.9. Des, I want to talk about uh, songwriting. You are a a singer and a songwriter. Um, What's your style? Is it words? Is it music? Is it both? How do you come up with songs? They seem to come to me. I often wake up with a hook or a line or both. just in my everyday life, I get these ideas. I get far too many that I can deal with. I haven't got a pen or a paper or a micro recorder handy. But the ones that are the better ones tend to stick with you. So, But, but just to give you an, an example, I'll wake up in the morning sometimes um, and I get one entire line with the melody in my head. And I think... Now, is that a song that's already existing, or is it not? And you know, I'll sort of do as much research as I can, and then I'll just um, think, right, okay, I'll I'll work on that, and I can normally write the song in twenty minutes, um, and then maybe spend another hour editing it or making it just a wee bit better, and then I'll. Um, because I don't read music, write music um, notationally or anything like that, I, I'll just go to my Pro Tools and, and put down a rough idea of what it is and then I'll record it at a later date. I, I don't consciously set out to write a song. They just come to me as ideas and um, I'll just work from that. I only became a songwriter about 10 years ago. mm and really? It was, yes, it's. Uh, I I'm, I'm wrote a couple of peace songs back in the seventies. They weren't very good, um, and I didn't pursue it. I guess I got busy with um, other stuff, but then something happened to me about ten years ago, and it, it was it, it shifted my perceptions on a few things. One of my cousins in England died at the age of fifty three. She was a beautiful woman. A lovely, lovely, lovely woman. She died, and from that day on, I always have songs in my head going round and round and round. Figure it out. I can't. <laughs> You'd obviously had a relationship with her. You've sort of visited, I imagine, a number of times. I never met her until 2005. And this is shortly before, obviously. And I imagine she, she was diagnosed. Died in 2009, I think it was, yeah. Um, what was her relationship to music? I don't really know. She didn't ever talk about it. We were, it was just family, you know. We were family. We were cousins. We had not met each other for most of our lives, and suddenly it was just a delight to have a, a cousin. Mm. You have to remember that growing up in fifties in the fifties in New Zealand, getting back to England was almost impossible. Mm. A phone call cost a fortune, and the delay on the line was hopeless you know mm. so having these cousins suddenly in my my life i never had cousins or grandparents in my life or, mm. was lovely and and it it was just such a tragedy when she died and i i don't know what happened but suddenly i became more creative you've talked about rather charmed musical life being able to play professionally um and i guess 
having a life where you, you take things easy, was there an essence of uh, your own mortality, maybe, coming to the fore? I'm not sure if it was to do with my mortality. I think it was just to do with sorrow, I think. You know, maybe, yeah, you're right. I, I think I've always thought that I was a lucky guy, you know. Um, I've pretty much done what I wanted to do all my life. And this was something that came along and sort of, you know, bit me on the hand in a way. And uh, I, I was hoping, I guess, that we were going to be friends and cousins for a long time, and it didn't happen, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it left it left the mark. Um, in terms of original compositions, I understand that you have um, uh, written for artists in the United States. What what happened was I started writing, and um, I was asked one day if I would actually open a very low key concert for local writers by the Magicians Club in Christchurch, and um, they'd heard that I was writing, and would I open the show? And I thought, yeah, great, I'll open the show. I'd rather open and get mine out of the way before, rather than try and follow these great people. But any, anyway, I did open it, and um, the guy who was the headline act, um, who was a guy called Alan Barron, um, a country writer and singer, he came to me after I'd finished, and he, he said to me, don't leave those songs under the bed. Um, and so I thought, oh. I went online and I found a company in the United States who would assess songs for you. And they, I checked them out, did all the background checks on them to see if they were just, you know, going to pinch songs or whatever. Um, but it seemed like, you know, they had a, a big, long pedigree and I sent one of my songs over there, a country song, and it was assessed and they offered a, me a contract to promote it and said that they'd be interested in hearing other songs but they they said to me don't send anything only send your best ones because we can't present anything bad to an artist because if we do they don't want to know us about, it, about us again so so how do you go about assessing what is what is good in in your mind i use just my experience of singing good songs you know a song should have a message of some sort it should have a catchy tune it should be well produced that's the hardest thing for me but um, I guess I just try and compare it to other songs that I've heard what sort of feedback do you get from friends and family or um, fans in Christchurch I'm actually quite publicity shy so I don't really seek a lot of publicity i mean i don't even have songs on facebook or youtube or anything because i write them and i've had some praise from people who know better than anybody else i kind of don't really need that you know i don't think they're necessarily great songs but i think they're good songs i'd be very keen to hear something that you've uh, written can you can you sort of think of anything over the years which you put together, which you'd like, like folks to hear. Well, I'm going to push a barrow because I've I have written some peace songs, and I'm going to um, give you this one to to play. It's called "What Are We Fighting For?" It's just a wee question that everyone can ask themselves when they're getting into a barney or they're <laughs> doing this and that. Because you know, there's too much aggro in this world. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> Yeah, 
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Des Newton on Plains FM 96.9. Um, any more aspirations in your life, in this charmed, easy life of Des? That's a difficult one, really, because um, I kind of have done pretty much everything I wanted to do. I mean, I've backed um, artists, top artists from New Zealand. I've been on the main stage at the Town Hall, opened for Dragon in... Uh, the Town Hall 2010 with my old rock and roll band, The Rockets. I guess the only thing that I would perhaps like to do one day, and we're talking about it at the moment, whether we should do it, and that's I might just go and follow my songs to Nashville and just go and have a look around and maybe talk to a few people, see if I can get some ideas. I'm not doing it for any other reason, but uh, just the desire to sort of see a process through, really. Uh, so at this point, um, is there anyone you've worked with or are working with um, that you've maybe sort of helped or inspired or given your advice 
too? Well, I've given advice to quite a few people. <laughs> Most of them might not take it very well. But, you know, I am mentoring a young lady, Crystal, who you've met. Um, she's a fabulous vocalist, but she had never done any professional work before, and she's currently working with me sometimes when I'm playing. And, yeah, I'm enjoying that. Uh, we've been together for a while now, and it's, it's worked out well. You do use backing tracks? Yes. When did you start using those tracks? I actually started in the 1980s. Okay. I first started with a, a machine that was very difficult to use because you actually had to play it with foot pedals while you play guitar and sang, um, which was quite tricky. And then um, I got some advice from my younger brother who was more into the technical side of things than I was, into the modern technical side, and he suggested using MIDI files, which I went on to in the mid-80s and um, started programming my own stuff and worked up a, a repertoire. Probably now I've got about 700 songs available for um, playing at any one time, ranging from if I'm doing the Opawa Bowling Club or doing a, you know, a, a rock and roll venue or a, a rock venue. I imagine the quality of those backing tracks and the, uh, the quality of the instruments on those tracks has improved over time. Out of sight, no doubt about that. It really has got better. Although, having said that, I am still using a Roland Sound Canvas, which was available back in those early days, just because it sounds more live than a lot of the um, MP3-based tracks that people use today, and also it's infinitely editable. Des, um, it's been wonderful sort of talking to you and sort of picking up your vibes, uh, at least. Is there a, um, a particular track that you'd like to uh, take us out with today? There is, actually. I've always admired John Lennon for his um, fabulous voice and his songwriting. And whatever possessed him to write this song, I'm not sure, but it's absolutely one of the best songs ever written. And it's called Imagine. Thanks, Des.
time for my tracks of the week and I'm all for a bit of diversity in what I choose to play for you. The first track today is out of Brooklyn in the United States and really does sound like the bonus round in your favourite arcade game. It's the band Anamanaguchi and their track Lorem Ipsum. Lorem Ipsum
Second track today, straight out of Otatahi, this is Corey off a new album called Phoenix, and this track is called When You Need.
Okay, that's it for today. You can find pretty much all of the tracks that Des and I talked about on a Spotify playlist created especially for the show. Just head to gardenofsound.nz and click on Des's picture on the front page. From the Garden of Sound site, you can also enter the draw to win a two-day camping pass for two to Rhythm and Alps worth almost $500. You do have to be over 18 to enter though. You can do that at gardenofsound.nz forward slash win. Thank you so much for being here today. This has been Garden of Sound. Until next week, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. Hi there.